Good morning and Merry Christmas to everyone. Uh, good to be here today, two days after Christmas. If you guys would take out your um, Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 1. Uh, if you're just joining us um, at the tail end of this sermon series, we are... Uh, reflecting on John's story of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And um, we are uh, beholding his glory. Uh, And I get the tail end of John chapter 1 from verses 16 through 18. So if you turn there with me and we will read uh, together. John chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. For from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Let's pray. Father, thank You for being a God of grace to us, Lord, that... um, You have called us to your son, Jesus. Lord, you've called us to be our church. Thank you, God, that you are knowable, that you've revealed yourself, Lord, uh, through scripture, um, to eyewitnesses, through your spirit, Lord. Help us to apply grace and truth to our life today. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you recently had the experience of walking around in the dark looking for a light switch? recently had that experience. For whatever reason, I seem to have that experience more than most people I've ever met. I don't know. Recently, I was in a, a, a bathroom, and it was pitch black. I opened the door, but I couldn't see uh, a light switch, so I had to close the door and find a light switch, and it took me forever. And it was bad bathroom design because the light switch needs to be close enough to the door, I feel. And so... Um, <laughs> So I was a little bit perturbed by it. It, it all worked out, um, but uh, you know, I, I have that experience. It's an unnerving experience. I don't like being around in the dark. I often, most often have this experience, though, when I work out at Sunny Hills High School in the mornings. Now, I know what you're all thinking. How do I get this guy's workout plan? Um, you know, I, I, I can share it with you if you want, but I've just got to tell you it's 50% of its genetics, people. I don't know what else to, to tell you, okay? Um, but I work out at Sunny Hills High School, and uh, me and my workout partner, who's another teacher at Sunny Hills, um, th- there's a complicated and inscrutable series of sensors in the room that make the lights go off. Um, and I know that it's supposed to be when they don't detect motion, but I assure you, I am moving in my workout, okay? Um, And so the lights go off, and for some reason, this time of the year, when it's darkest outside um, and it's coldest, the sensors don't seem to work. So the lights go off, and there's this kind of ritual that we have. We kind of um, flail a bit, trying to, like, trigger a sensor, but then we, th- we think that maybe there's sound activated, so then we clap or jingle keys or something like that, and then if they still don't go off, and I, it, I'm convinced it's because it's cold outside, the sensors aren't working properly. I don't, that's probably 
like absurd talismanic non-scientific thinking, but that's what that's my theory right now. So eventually one of us goes on the quest of finding the light switch, which is on the other side of the room. And I I'm the one who always goes onto the light switch. I'd love to have a night vision video of myself looking for the light switch. I go in this, I'm sure I look absolutely absurd. There's this, you know, slow shuffle and arms outstretched. And then I have this mental map, right? I've been in this room hundreds of times. I have a mental map of what the room should look like, but I have a horrible spatial memory of where things are. Ask my wife who finds my keys for me often in in the week. and so I, I eventually search for it, and I, I know I'm getting close, and then right when I'm about to do the light switch, the sensor picks it up, and it turns on. I don't even get the payoff of actually having the light switch, you know, switch. So it's, uh, it's an unnerving and a frequent experience. Well, this last week, uh, my workout partner, I, I, we had experienced this several times. It's kind of become a bit of a joke recently. I'm moving towards this thing very slowly. We're both in pitch black, and I hear, Scott, walk towards the light. And um, it was a, you know, had a bit of a, a, a chuckle there. And um, I immediately, you know, took the opportunity, the, you know, I am the master of creating an awkward evangelistic moment. <laughs> and so I said, okay, well, uh, what color is the light? And he said, what? And it was totally, you know, it was a bad question. And he's, he said, isn't it always white? And I said, well, if it's red, I don't want to walk towards that light. And I thought it was funny, and he missed it again. And, <laughs> um, and, and so anyway, um, it did launch a brief, uh, albeit unfruitful conversation about this notion that a lot of people have in this day and age that when you die, you just walk towards some light, right? I mean, it's a, I think it's fairly common. I'm, uh, I, I hear that often among people that they believe that, that, um, that the entrance into the afterlife is something like that, right? Um, I think it was a 1980s TV show called Touched by an Angel that kind of <laughs> created this mythological impulse towards believing that specific idea about uh, the afterlife. So anyway, um, I, I think it's interesting because my, my workout partner, who's not a Christian, um, he, he clearly believed that it's something like that. Uh, but he did not know it. Uh, he did not know that it's something like that. He believed it, right? But, but knowing something is more than just believing it. Knowledge is justified, true belief. We can believe a lot of things that are untrue, but we can only know things that are true. I don't think this idea, though, that uh, the afterlife being associated with uh, light is is necessarily untrue. As a matter of fact, um, it's it's an image that uh, John gives us here in his gospel, right? Uh, I happen to have studied a little bit on the subject uh, when I was back in grad school a guy, Gary Habermas, who's an expert in the resurrection, he had actually done some studies about what people do experience when they have near-death experiences. Um, and uh, he only uh, accepted stories that had some sort of empirical evidence that this person actually uh, left and came back. There are stories of people being hearing conversations that uh, 
after they were pr- pronounced clinically dead, they, they, they can come back and recall conversations that they heard in the waiting room or whatever. But uh, aside from the details, he found that this notion of going into the light was, was not normal, was not what people reported. And in fact, if uh, people were not Christian, oftentimes they would come back terrified. Um, and so, you know, it's, 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 it's worth considering. <laughs> what sorts of things do we just think or assume that we don't know? Um, John, though, does give us this image of light and, and, and light associated with God, okay? Um, and he gives us two images, really, that are abstract concepts. He gives us word and light in John chapter 1, uh, things that we would not necessarily associate with. Uh, with some sort of human form. This Christmas season, we have exchanged the story of the Incarnation for the theology of the Incarnation. John's gospel is uh, more poetic, and he likes to use uh, concepts. And so the familiar characters of Mary and Joseph and the shepherds are exchanged for concepts like light and logos. The traditional setting, like Bethlehem, um, has been replaced by a tabernacle dwelling among us. And the awestruck glory that shepherds uh, experienced in seeing the angelic host, that's replaced by this phrase that we have beheld the glory, full of grace and truth. We've exchanged the familiar story of Christmas for the ideas behind Christmas, uh, this uh, Advent season. Now, I'm a high school teacher, and one of the classes I teach is called Theory of Knowledge, or TOK, and it's part of the International Baccalaureate Program, and if you're in that program, you have to take that class. And um, my students and I spend that class uh, asking various iterations of the question, how do we know what we know? What are the ways we know uh, things? What are the areas of knowledge? What are the benefits and the limitations of those, those areas? And if you're thinking, wow, that, that sounds like an awesome class, you're right, it's an awesome class. And if you're thinking, man, I would hate to cl- take that class, you're probably also right. You'd probably hate to take that class. It's one of those people love it or hate it kinds of classes because we deal in the world of abstraction, okay? Abstraction is a, is a hard place to be. Uh, any of you ever seen the uh, movie uh, Inside Out? It was this 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 summer. Movie Inside Out. It's a Pixar movie, so you know it's going to be probably worth the uh, the uh, admission ticket or at least the red box, right? And um, it takes place in the internal world of a child's mind as she's going through just some normal growing pains, but also a particular experience of moving far from home. And the main characters are the emotions that seem to drive her mind. And at one point, these characters, some of these characters are on a quest, and the emotions of joy and sadness are trying to get back to the you know, cerebral cortex or wherever they, they do things with all the other emotions. And... Um, and at one point, they find this creature named Bing Bong, and Bing Bong is an imaginary friend this child once had, and Bing Bong's trying to guide them through. Well, they, uh, if we, we have a picture of them up here, 
So there's joy, sadness in the background, and bing bong, okay? The imaginary friend. Well, they come to this place called uh, the area of abstraction, and there's all these uh, danger signs because when you go into the area of abstraction, you can get trapped and things aren't what they seem. So they go into this place called abstraction, and here's the picture of what happens to them in the world of abstraction. All of a sudden, they look kind of like more like Picasso would have um, uh, characterize them. And they need to get beyond this world of abstraction be th before things become too abstract and they're barely recognizable as themselves. And here we get them, you know, at their most abstract form, right? And so you might be able to say, yeah, well, that's, uh, you know, if I've seen the particulars and seen the process, I could say, okay, yeah, in some sort of abstract way, that is, you know, that conforms to those uh, characters. But we, the details get washed out, right? And there's a problem with abstraction. Okay, so for instance, John gives us Jesus who is light and word, but if we just left it there and said God entered in the world as light and word, what percentage of religious people in the world do you think would be able to say, yeah, I'll sign on to that? God's word and light. We have sacred texts that have words that we consider um, as uh, authoritative and from God. Or uh, we have a festival of lights. We have uh, the Hindu festival Dwali is also the festival of lights. It's not just Hanukkah, okay? Um, or they might say our, our, our uh, teacher is an enlightened one. It has unique access to light, right? If we just take word and light and leave them high up on the level of abstraction, uh, you know, we might be able to have more agreement. But John doesn't want us to stay there. He doesn't want us to stay abstract. It's important that we understand um, and are able to distinguish abstract things from uh, concrete things. Uh, a thinker named S.A. Yakihawa is uh, famous for having written a book called Language and Thought and Action, and he introduces this very um, helpful concept called the ladder of abstraction. So I'm just going to show you the ladder of abstraction here, and you can see it's the ladder, and towards the top we have abstract and the bottom concrete. Now let's say I just gave you a concept. I, I said, I'm thinking of something in my mind right now. You try to figure what it is, and I said, it's wealth. Now you might have different connotations, right, in your mind, or you might have different images in your mind about what is wealth. You might think of a stack of cash, or a palatial mansion, or, you know, um, some stocks or something like that. Well, what if I got a little bit more concrete and said, uh, not just wealth, but it's an asset. It's something that you can tangibly own and point to. Okay, you might say this, you know, uh, isn't uh, just the most abstract concept of wealth. Okay, next, you might say, if I said, it's a farm asset. It's wealth that might occur on a farm. And yeah, you know, Gerald Haugen isn't the only person who can use a farm, farming illustration, okay? I can do it too, so, you know, get used to it. I might, I might have another one. Um, farm asset, and then uh, if we go down, I say livestock. All of a sudden you're thinking, okay, this, this has narrowed the field, right? Um, and then finally I could get very specific and say it's a cow or it's a specific cow named Bessie the cow, and, and you could get very concrete, right? Well, this is what John has done for us uh, in, in his uh, intro to his gospel. He said, yeah, God is word, and he's become light. But he doesn't want to keep us up there in the abstract place. He uh, drills down to very, uh, something very concrete, Jesus Christ, something very specific. 
And it's important that we recognize that. What is the function of the abstract? He wants us to, those abstract things, word and light, reveal something so important to us that God is knowable. How do we know things? We know things through language, through communication. When light bounces off of something, we see it, and it has shape and form and corresponds to uh, reality. John wants us to know God is knowable, but his knowability has taken a form that's more than just the abstract thing. It's a concrete thing named Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not an abstraction. He's not a mere religious concept. He is a person. And John doesn't want us to just stay in the world of light and word. Those are important. He wants us to know God in specific and meaningful ways. If God is knowable as light and word, and the specific way that he's knowable is concrete in Jesus Christ, I think a reasonable question is, well, what then does he want us to know? And so if you're looking for a brief outline, I would say he wants us to know two things. He wants us to know God's grace. And then he wants us to know God personally or God's person. So that's where I'm going to go with this uh, uh, exposition of this passage, knowing God's grace and knowing God as a person or personally. Look at the passage and specifically look at verses 16 and 17 with me. It says, For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's some important language here. I want to focus on fullness and grace upon grace. Now, two days after uh, Christmas, you might have something particular in mind with regard to fullness, right? Um, I'm sure I wasn't the only one who experienced fullness. Um, it may be one of the more negative senses. It can be satisfying, and then there's re- you know being overfull. Well, this this fullness is not that. Okay, uh, it really has the connotation of wholeness completion, and totality. Okay, being full in the sense that my, what I need has been totally and completely met. From his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. I think it's important, uh, as John uh, a couple of weeks ago said in his sermon, that Christianity is a religion of receiving Okay, it doesn't say from his fullness we have earned or deserved. It says from his fullness we have received. And then what have we received? Something unique, grace upon grace. Now, this is the only time in the Bible we have this phrase, grace upon grace. Uh, and interest, it's, I think it's interesting for that reason alone. And secondly, because grace is such a familiar phrase to us, right? Our church is named grace. As a matter of fact, within five square miles, there are 11 churches that have grace in their name, right? And to my knowledge, no synagogues have the word grace in their name, okay? Uh, No mosques have the word grace in their name. Um, It's a uniquely Christian institution. I I don't think I would be, (laughs) I, I, I doubt I would find anyone from another religion uh, who would contest the idea that the idea that Christianity is the religion of grace? It is. A, it's a central, distinctive factor uh, to this religion. We assume that God has given us unmerited favor as Christians. It's an assumption we have. You can't be a Christian without having arrived at that uh, conclusion. 
And of course, that conclusion is fleshed out in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But grace upon grace is different, right? It's not just the saving grace that we're all familiar with who have been part of the church and read uh, the scripture and what it reveals about Jesus. Now, in theology, there are other kinds of graces. Some people talk about general grace. There's a general grace that everyone has access to. Romans 1 and 2, we all have minds. We all have a sense of right and wrong whether or not it's codified specifically in God's law. We all have, um, we all have a uh, ability to uh, know when we are wrong. We have, we have the sense of injustice. Uh, we all have creative minds or the capacity to build and do things and the general creation mandate. That's a general kind of grace that all of humanity has. That's why uh, I know so many good people who aren't Christians because through uh, God's general revelation, they figured out how to be a good person by the world's standards, not God's standard, but by the world's standards. Who you'd say, I'd want that person to be my neighbor, for instance. That I don't believe is the kind of grace that he's talking about. He's not talking about the general grace that all people get and the special grace that Christians get. Uh, the language grace upon grace, uh, that word upon is a little bit tricky too. It's actually the, uh, you guys are familiar with the, the prefix uh, anti, okay? So it could be uh, grace in place of grace, grace instead of grace, grace against grace, grace over grace, which is where we get upon grace. There are all sorts of, you know, theological uh, minds who have come down at different places to what that word means. I'm not a great theological mind. So I'm going to focus on the text and, and go where the text leads me. And the, immediately after that, we see the preposition for. After this grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I want to talk about uh, a kind of grace that we don't usually think about as grace, and that's the grace of the law. To know God's grace is to know the grace of God's law. I don't know if you guys think of law as something particularly gracious, right? Oftentimes we think law is, uh, is not necessarily merciful, that law is about justice, that law seems kind of uh, maybe harsh. Um, but I would challenge you to think about law as grace. I want to just talk generally about the idea of law. Chances are where you first encountered the law was in your own home. Uh, your parents, they had rules that um, they set up. When my wife, Laura, and I first became parents, we had her parents, who we thought were really good parents, do a parenting seminar for us and several of our friends who had just you know, had, had children. So, you know, nothing prepares you to be a parent. So, you know, we had children and all of a sudden we're thinking, oh, now what do we do? You know, and so my wife's a reader and her parents were good parents. So we brought them in for our day-long seminar with some friends. And uh, my wife's father, who has a background in some marriage family therapy, he, he said, you know, with parenting you want, think of establishing clear boundaries. Um, and then as children get older, you kind of broaden the boundaries um, based on their capacity. And within those boundaries, think of it as a funnel. At the bottom of the funnel, uh, the boundaries are pretty pretty close. There are lots of things you can't touch when you're a baby or when you're a one-year-old, right? Don't touch things that are breakable, the light socket, 
the trash, those sorts of things. You grow up and the boundaries become a little bit broader. Don't go into the street, but you can be in the yard. And up and up and up, and eventually uh, you're released into adulthood and you're a fine, upstanding citizen, ideally, right? So the thing about boundaries, those laws, is what, what happens when you transgress one of those boundaries? Well, you get a punishment, right? And uh, sometimes the parents have to manufacture a punishment. So let's say you're touching the light, but you aren't electrocuted. Let's hope you're not, right? (laughs) But we give you a punishment so that you know, associate punishment with touching the light because, well, you get it, right? We don't want you to actually get electrocuted. So to to try to, um, to connect the universe of wisdom to the physical universe at a very young age is important. Now, a lot, a lot of parents, um, uh, I'd say all parents fail in perfectly um, being just. I know I do. Uh, but the idea of law and the freedom a child has within the law, if you know where the boundaries are, then anything inside that boundary becomes fair game. You don't have to worry about whether it's right or wrong. You know, and you can experiment and grow and be free inside the confines of the law when you go outside of those boundaries the stakes become higher and the risks become greater. I once had a student, um, you know, just one of those top memorable students who he had, I, w- I felt like I was his priest or something. He'd come and confess to me all the horrible things he did. He wasn't contrite though. It was more bragging. It was uh, basically every adult in my life lets me get away with everything. And um, he did. He had a phalanx of adults and professionals running interference for his whole life. And, um, and, you know, it was amazing. His parents sued every teacher he had ever had, kindergarten through 10th grade. Um, the lawyers were coming through, and it, it was crazy. Um, but this student would, would come to my room and say, I, you know, I actually know how to read. I just choose not to. And um, I wasn't in class yesterday because I was gambling at Pachanga Casino. But don't worry, it'll be excused. And it was, you know. Um, and I, I, I remember telling this, this student, this is going to catch up with you. And he graduated, and it did catch up with him. He was violent. He was a thief. He was in jail. And I don't know, hopefully he's straightened himself out or knows the Lord. But it was amazing and how aware he was that he was above the law, that no one had ever held him accountable so generally, the law really can be grace to us. Knowing what the boundaries are, um, that's, that's helpful. But it's not just any old law, right? You can find sections of Scripture, like Romans 13, where, where God institutes just generally law for everyone. But here we have specific law, right? It's the law through Moses. It's the capital L law that Moses received uh, from God, right? The words of God came to Moses and declared the law for how his, uh, God's people ought to act. Uh, if you remember way back to New City Catechism, questions like 10 through 20, we have this whole section on the law. And it was a really helpful uh, study for me and my family uh, to think about God's law a lot last year. Okay, I'll be honest, we didn't stick with the whole catechism. I know you all did, but um, we didn't stick with the whole thing. But... Um, the section of the law, we were, you know, in our stride and doing a pretty good job of, of really committing our thinking to that question. And uh, around question 13 or 14, we came to the reality, 
no one keeps the law perfectly, that God requires righteousness, but no one keeps it. And then the question 15 was, since nobody can keep the law, what is its purpose? And the answer went something like this, that we may know the holy nature of God and know his will and the sinful nature and disobedience in our own hearts. Uh, the pastor R.C. Sproul uh, meditates on uh, John Calvin's conclusions about the law. And uh, Calvin came up with the kind of threefold use of the law. And I want to go over those and, and, and try to say these are the ways the law of God particularly is grace to us. And how you can't know the gospel really without knowing the law. Um, the first purpose of the law then is that the law is a mirror. The law is a mirror for us. So on the one hand, the, uh, the law of God reflects and mirrors God's perfect righteousness. But, and it tells us about who God is, that God is holy, for instance. And it doesn't strike me as uh, obvious that God's holiness would be as important as it, it, it seems in the Old Testament. But, maybe even more importantly, is the law illuminates our own human sinfulness. Augustine wrote, the law orders that we, after attempting to do what is ordered, and so feeling our weakness under the law, may learn to implore the help of grace. Sounds strange, but it's a good thing to try to keep God's law and to fail miserably. Um, it's much better than to delude ourselves into thinking that we have kept God's law or that we can. Galatians 3.24 says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Um, an old version of that God was our guardian was God is our schoolmaster. Or sorry, the law was our schoolmaster until Christ came. Anyone ever just had a really hard teacher that made you learn? Yeah? No? <laughs> um, uh, I was talking to Ashley Ann McLeish, and she graduated from the school where I teach, and um, she said, oh, one of the best classes was this teacher. No one really liked her, but she made us learn to write. Every one of us. And I knew who that teacher was. Excellent teacher. But it was the sense that... Uh, I'm going to tell you exactly how you're wrong so that you can know how to be right. And I'm going to be with you there, and it's not going to be pleasant or easy at all. Um, the law was our guardian, our schoolmaster. It drives us to Christ. The second purpose of the law is to restrain evil. The law in and of itself can't change human hearts. You know, some people are, are you know, I don't know if you've heard this phrase, you can't legislate morality. I think uh, in this sense you can't, right? No law changes your heart. It might change your behavior, but it doesn't necessarily change your heart. Now, on the other hand, I, I bristle at you can't legislate morality because all law has moral implications at, at some level. And so I think you, you must, you know, paradoxically, legislate morality. But the point here is that uh, God has given us the law to protect righteous people from the unjust. Um, it curbs uh, unrighteousness. It provides some accountability. Um, and 
if you think of places where the law retreats, right, um, where that, that presence of the law retreats, oftentimes you see uh, a rise in criminal activity. Um, and so the second purpose of God's law, and we're saying this is God's law is perfect revealed, is for protection. And finally, the third purpose of God's law is to reveal what is pleasing to God. Right? And this is something for us to, to um, keep in mind. Uh, Jesse had uh, put Romans 6, 1 through uh, 4 up on the screen earlier during worship. You know, uh, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Um, being saved by Christ doesn't say, hey, the law is no longer important. Christ has fulfilled the law, but he has not rendered it uh, meaningless or useless. The law is... Uh, is a good thing. Jesus himself says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And even Christ reinterpreted the law. He didn't say, just don't just not commit adultery, right? He said, don't even look at a woman lustfully. Don't not murder someone only. Don't hate your brother, right? I mean, Christ raised the standard. But we also know from Scripture that by God's Spirit, He's written the law in our hearts. We have access to uh, to grow in our ability to please God by surrendering ourselves to the law. So grace upon grace, right? Uh, for the law was delivered through Moses. But it wasn't just a list of rules. It was a covenant too, right? Uh, it wasn't that Moses said, okay, here's the rules for right and wrong. And people are like, okay, thanks. Thanks for the information, right? No, it was a covenant. The people said, we will obey the law. And then Moses uh, had animals sacrificed and poured the blood into bowls and uh, sprinkled the blood on all the people to ratify this new covenant. Uh, the law provided uh, access and relationship to God. And of course, they immediately failed and the sacrificial system was instituted because God uh, cannot dwell with that, uh, those who are unholy. Uh, so grace upon grace. We have grace and truth through Jesus Christ. And this is the superior covenant that many of us have uh, entered into by confessing Jesus Christ as our Lord, being obedient uh, to Him as an act of faith in baptism, uh, committing to the means of grace that He's given us, His church, His scripture, ministry, uh, gospel service, uh, all these things, right? Uh, the Word became flesh, and, and because of that, we have a superior covenant. Um, Hebrews 2.9 uh, state uh, states that we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of His suffering of, uh, of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So Jesus uh, inaugurated a covenant through the shedding of blood too. Uh, he was God who came in the form of man, crowned with glory, died in our place. But how could he die in our place? Was he also, uh, wasn't he also under the law? Absolutely. He was under the law too, but... Peter uh, 2.22 says, He committed no sin, and neither was deceit found in his mouth. So Jesus fulfilled the law, 
and so can be a substitutionary sacrifice for us. Those who are far off can come to him through faith in Christ, the person of Christ. Uh, Romans 8, 3 and 4 says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In, in some ways, the covenant of grace, the grace upon grace, it's all one grace. It's God giving us what we need to know in order to access and accept Christ. Uh, I would say a healthy church needs to have a strong sense of what the law is and what the gospel is. If you have the law without the gospel, you get some legalism going on. And if you have the gospel without the law, you get what a lot of people tend to call cheap grace. People don't feel driven to Christ. They feel like maybe the function of the church isn't to worship Christ, praise Him, accept uh, what He has to give from His Word in that day, but maybe the church is the place where I become a better person. Okay? Um, We need the law and the gospel. I, I think this is clearly on John's mind, but it's not all that's on John's mind. Um, it's not just that we get the theological categories just right. Because what Jesus gives us, what John wants to show us in the person of Christ, is that we get to know God personally. We get to see God. Verse 18 conveys to us a remarkable truth. Not only can we know the nature and character of God, but because of Jesus, we can know God personally and we can see God. It's interesting, the the series, we have seen His glory. Right? And we're so familiar with this phrase. It doesn't, is, has anybody once been shocked by the sermon uh, series title, We Have Seen His Glory? Have any of you thought, Whoa, I don't want to see God's glory. I need to hide my eyes from God's glory. All right? Um, you know, if Moses came down from Sinai and said, Hey, I'm going to have a sermon series called We Have Seen God's Glory people would freak out. I don't want to see God's glory. In fact, God in Exodus a number of times says, don't bring the people up here to see me. They will die when they see my glory. But John can say, we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. You know, John makes this strong case that we have seen God in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, Yahweh saves, Christ, the anointed one. It's a specific person in history, a time and place. I'm going to point to him. I'm going to name the people who know him. I'm going to name the places he's been. You can confirm uh, this uh, with other eyewitnesses. We have seen his glory in the person of Jesus Christ. It's very concrete. There's no abstraction there. And I think it's important for us who I think, I'll speak for myself, but I'll also just speak generally to the culture. I think we're very comfortable dwelling in the world of abstractions. I think to to an extent, there's there's comfort in thinking, yeah, everyone has access to part of the truth. Uh, For whatever reason, then I'm off the hook. I mean, part of it is we live in a very pluralistic culture, right? More people from more nations. There's maybe a tendency to, you know, 
Uh, let's get along. Let's, let's uh, camp on the things we can agree on, right? Um, I think of this uh, old um, parable that comes from uh, the Jain community um, who are Hindu, and it's this parable about the blind men and the elephant, right? And, and it goes like this. A bunch of blind men came, and they knew an elephant was around, and, and one uh, said, hey, the elephant is a pillar, because he had touched the elephant's leg. The other said, no, it's a rope, because he touched the tail. Uh, the other is a thick branch of a tree who had touched the trunk. The other is a, a, a hand fan who had touched uh, the ear. Oh, it's a huge wall who had touched the flank. And then the man who had touched the tusk said, no, this is a, a solid pipe. And these men began to argue about what an elephant was. And a wise man came by and said, what's the matter? And they said, we cannot agree on what the elephant is like. Uh, and, and each of them told him, and the wise man calmly explained to them, all of you are right. The reason every one of you is telling it differently is because each of you have touched a different part of the elephant. So actually, the elephant has all of those features. Uh, what you have said, oh, everyone said, and there was no more to fight about. John could not uh, disagree more with this parable. John isn't saying, oh, we all have uh, partial access. No, he's saying there's a unique access to God. We have seen his glory through Jesus Christ. And there's a whole lot of historical uh, <laughs> uh, significance to that phrase, we have seen his glory. You know, there is a time, uh, even though uh, Moses did not see God, he wanted to see uh, God's glory. He wanted to see uh, God's glory. And so he asked God in Exodus 33, can I see your glory? And God said to him, uh, yes, but you know what? Uh, you cannot see me face to face. I'm going to stand you on this rock. And when I pass by, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock and put my hand over your face until I pass by and you can see the backside of my glory which I know that's just it's such a strange story, right? Um, so this notion that oh, we all have this kind of uh, uh, access to God, the, the, this idea that, well, every religion has some sort of um, sliver of what God is, but no one knows who God really is. No, no. Um, to say that no one knows who God really is is a universal truth claim. You're saying the truth is no one can know. Well, that's a pretty arrogant thing to say. Um, instead, John is saying the fullness, everything, the complete package is in this one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the anointed one. Jesus even inaugurated uh, his own ministry by saying this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he's quoting Isaiah, something written 800 years before. And then he rolls up the scroll and gives it back to the attendant and sits down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus came with authority. He was anointed. He was anointed to do God's work. 
a special, unique calling and anointing. And of course, we have seen in this last year as we've gone over the book of Mark, we've seen time and again the healing, his care for the oppressed, the good news being proclaimed to the poor, uh, sight recovered by the blind, uh, his miraculous work that points to his authority and his death on the cross for us so that we might know God, that we might know him, have knowledge of him, and a special knowledge of him. We don't just know God's law, John says, we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. We've been placed in the cleft of the rock by Jesus' work. No one has ever seen God, the only God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. That phrase, the Father's side there, is a reference to the Father's bosom. It's like being held very close to your Father. It's not just sitting at His right hand. It's the same phrase that John, who leaned into Jesus' bosom at the Lord's Supper, uses of Himself. It's intimate and personal knowledge. Jesus, the Son, has intimate and personal knowledge to uh, God, and through His sacrifice, we are hidden in Him, and we can behold His glory. There's a great hymn uh, called Rock of Ages. We don't sing it often. Uh, but I want to read a couple of verses and consider the lyrics here. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in Thee. Let the water and the blood from Thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Verse 2, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's commands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and save alone. That rock of ages cleft for me is referencing that Jesus has become the rock that we hide in so we can behold his glory the fullness of God. No one has seen God, but we can know him and have access to him through Jesus Christ, whom we have seen. Well, so what does that mean for us as, as God's church here in downtown Fullerton? I think clearly we see in Scripture a call to be salt and light, that this is not um, secret or hidden knowledge. It has been made known and revealed, and it's our job to consider what does it mean for me to make it known, however awkwardly uh, to make it known? And as a, a church and church leaders, we have to think, how can we equip people to make it known? How, how do we think about that and do that well uh, here in the context where God has us in downtown Fullerton? I would say this, one thing that we can all take away from this is, um, how do we behold His glory? I think one very simple way is really to commit yourself to the life of the church. That God has said, the means of grace for receiving, uh, beholding my glory are through simple people opening the word and speaking truth. People coming together and in one voice praising God. People praying together. People baptizing new believers. Taking the Lord's Supper. Because that's how we receive 
even today, grace upon grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word um, and how it uh, clarifies truth for us. Lord, thank you that you are knowable. For all the unknowns in our life, Lord, the most important thing to know is known, Lord, not because we're so smart and certainly not because we're deserving, but because you've revealed it. Apply this word to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.